Hello, hello, everybody. This is the seventh episode of the Red Sox Unfiltered Podcast. That's very exciting. We made it through seven. This is our midweek episode, which we are going to do consistently now, I promise. Um, joined as all, I am Patrick Green. I don't think I said that. That's the first thing I should have said, but I am Patrick Green of Red Sox Unfiltered. Joining me is Dave Latham. Dave, say hi to everybody. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful Wednesday edition. I think this is my uh, first Wednesday ever recording. Yeah, I think it's my first Wednesday, too, so that's that, that's something new. That's neat. Uh, Dave is also of Red Sox Unfiltered, amazing writer. Definitely give his work some views. And we got Jordan DeCoe, who is also a staple on this podcast and is a wonderful writer over Red Sox Unfiltered. Jordan, say, give a shout-out to the people. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> All right, so we got an exciting show here for you. Um, we're going to have a lot of fun topics, as always, um, but we're going to start breaking down the Red Sox-Rays series. Um, so it's we're recording before tonight's game, which starts at 7, 10 p.m., so we don't know the result of that. So when you're listening to this, uh, we'll be a little behind, but that's okay. Um, but we're going to start going over Tuesday's 4-2 to win over the Tampa Bay Rays. Um, Chris Sale, surprising guys, had a very nice game. Um, lots of punchies, also very surprising. Just kidding. Nine strikeouts to two walks, pitched seven and two-thirds innings, allowed just one earned run. I mean, I don't, I don't know. This is this is just like commonplace. Um, Mookie Betts, this is also very unsurprising, belted his league-leading 16th dinger, another pull shot into left field in Tropicana Field. It was a thing of beauty. I love Mookie Betts. I think everyone does, who who are Red Sox fans, of course. Um, So to start this, I wanted to say something that Pete Abraham of the Boston Globe actually asked Mookie Betts this question. I don't know if you guys saw it. Um, And it was revolving his home run rampage. He asked Betts if he had any interest in participating in the home run derby. And his response, hell no. I don't hit home runs in BP. I thought that was beautiful. Uh, Dave, do you want to see Mookie Betts in the home run derby? What was that part? I didn't get the last part there. Do you want to see Mookie Betts in the home run derby? Um, honestly, probably not. I'm, I'm just paranoid about this kind of stuff because I always felt like if you're a guy that hits home runs and only hits home runs, go for the home run derby. But I've always been paranoid that if you go up to, to bat in something like the home run derby where you're looking to only hit homers, you can really mess up your swing like for a little bit afterwards. Yeah. That's pure paranoia speaking. I'm well aware of that, but I'm just going to listen to my paranoid side on this one. So I'd much rather Mookie just play in the all-star game. Yeah, I agree. Whenever I take batting practice for intramural softball, I tend to do the same thing. I'm just completely useless for the game, so I, I can relate to that. Uh, yeah, when I was when I was 14 playing uh, Babe Ruth League ball, um, you know, could, I had to focus on line drives only. If you aim for the fences, it never comes. And it, clearly, we're both as good of hitters as Mookie Betts. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I think uh, push comes to shove. If we just pursued it a little bit, uh, we could we could easily be Mookie Betts. Just take a few more hacks. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, with the, with the launch angle, uh, the fly ball revolution these days, that's that's kind of where we're trending towards. Hitters are just aiming, aiming, trying to go deep, trying to hit that long fly ball. And it's been successful for a lot of guys. It's actually revamped some guys' careers like a Justin Turner, like a Daniel Murphy. So uh, that's a little tangent away from the home run derby aspect of it. But, uh, Jordan, what do you think about Betts not wanting to participate in the home run derby? Would you like to see him? You know what? As much as I would like to see him, I think it's a smart move on Betts' part. Um, I mean, 
like uh, like David touched on, it's just too much of a risk uh, post post All Star break to uh, to um, um what, what am I trying to say? To just like to continue like going on the stretch that bets that bets is on now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't want to talk about the Yankees on a Red Sox podcast, but like Aaron Judge like said the same thing. Like he's not participating in the home run derby either for like for the same reason. So I think it's a very smart move by Betts, but you know, it, it would be exciting, but you know, it's a smart move on Betts part. Yeah. I wonder if there's been any research done about players who participate in the home run derby and their corresponding stroke. Like I, I have, there's this perception that players tend to struggle after participating in something like that. But I wonder if there's actual empirical data to back that up to me. Like I kind of like without seeing any evidence, I mean, I could be wrong, but I kind of feel like it's like the Madden cover curse. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that with football where players are on the Madden cover and then they kind of suck the next year. Um, but I, I I don't know if I buy it. I don't know if I think that the the home run derby actually has an effect on the players. Um, but I, I'm open. My mind is open. I, I'm willing to see the research, but I just kind of think it's arbitrary. I think maybe there is a psychological component, but uh, I'm not sure about that. Um, so to continue in this game, Jackie Bradley Jr. actually accumulated two hits, which is a very welcome sight for Red Sox fans, especially me. Um, Craig Kimbrell pitched the ninth, but looked a little iffy. He allowed two hits and a walk, but he escaped unscathed, so, you know, doesn't really matter. But, yeah, there there were some some struggles. Uh, Jordan, did you catch the game at all by any chance? You know what? Um, I was... I was doing finals, so like I saw, I saw Chris Sale start a little bit. Um, I didn't watch the full game. I saw the first inning of Chris Sale, and then uh, Mookie Betts is a liner, liner into the seats, which was like, which is just amazing to see. Like he's, he's always blowing my mind every time he hits a home run. Like I, like it's it's gonna be exciting to see how long he can keep it up. Keep it, sorry, how long he can keep it up. Yeah, as Dave said in the Facebook group chat, why do people pitch Mookie Betts inside? Dave, do you are you still of oh, that yeah. opinion? What's that? Yeah, I don't. It's beyond oh, me why people. It's beyond me why inside to Mookie. I mean, he can crush anything, but if you look at his feet charts, if you look at where his home runs go, if you look at basically anything, you know that if it's an inside, you know, belt level pitch, it's gone. It's as good as over. Like games done. Your only hope is that he hits it really hard right at one of your defenders. So I mean, I just. I, honestly, we're getting to the Barry Bonds point almost. It's just you walk the guy anytime first is open because you don't want you just know what he could do to you if you give him a decent pitch to hit. Obviously, we're not there yet with him, but you know, really, the sky's the limit with this kid, especially with the year he's having. Yeah, it's a it's a very Barry Bonds esque year. It's a Mike Trout esque year, and Mike Trout is also having Mike Trout esque year. We talked about this in various podcasts, so we won't talk about it again. But Mookie Betts again, amazing. You're our heroes. Um, but tonight's game, which again starts in a, about an hour from when we we're recording, uh, David Price will take the mound after his complete game shutout. His redemption, um, taking on Chris Archer, who is notorious for being the Rays' ace of the staff, but that actually has been Blake Snell this year. Archer struggled a little bit with a 5.01 ERA, but his fielding independent numbers, like his strikeouts, walks, are pretty much the same. I'm I'm not too concerned about him. I think he's been the victim of some bad ball luck. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on this game, Dave? I'll start with you okay well first off um as everyone who listens to this knows i am a bit pretty big david price guy 
So I'm pretty excited to see what he's got today. He's yet to have a bad outing where his hand isn't acting up, and I expect that to continue today. Last time he was down in Tampa, he pitched, I want to say, seven innings of shutout ball, and then the other time he faced Tampa at Fenway, it was seven innings of shutout ball. So he's done great against this club, who really have been better than a lot of people thought they'd be going into the year. And as for the Chris Archer thing, he's a good pitcher, but it, does, it never shows up against the Red Not Sox. Not against the Red Sox. <laughs> for whatever reason, the Red Sox just live to kill this guy. So I'm expecting a fairly comfortable win today. Yeah. Jordan, what about you? Are you expecting a dub? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, historic, historically this season, uh, Travis had, like, a good record against the, against the Rays, except for his, like, I think his last start against against the Rays in Fenway, um, but you know, regardless, he's had like a hand issue, and then he he pitched like a complete game. Uh, you know, the start after his um, his whole hand, his hand issue um, situation. So, I mean, I, I gotta be optimistic. I think I'm think we're gonna be, we're going to be in for a good game. Yeah, definitely a great game. This is a really interesting series to me because, in my opinion, the Rays are the third best team in the AL East. I mean, Yankees, Red Sox, clearly the juggernauts, but the Red Sox obviously owned the Rays in the first series and the second series. The Rays actually, I think they took three out of four against the Red Sox. So I'm definitely interested to see how the rest of the series plays out. I think the Rays are a better team than people give them credit for. I love the innovative strategy of this four-man rotation, so I'm excited to watch that all year. I'm. I, I, is there a bullpen day? Does anyone know? Uh, on Thursday, by any chance? I don't. I don't think there is. Yeah, there is. I, I think there is. Yeah, okay. I think um, they did something to switch it up. I think they moved Archer early so they could do a bullpen game tomorrow, or so, something weird is happening with their rotation. Yeah, like more weird than what they normally do. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean to, to add on to that, I don't know if you guys saw the uh, the I guess the two games that Sergio Romo pitched, but like he pitched. I think two, like, I not, like his first game, his, he pitched like two scoreless innings, and then he came back the day after and pitched the scoreless innings. So, I mean, it's a really exciting. Um, I guess I, I hate to word, I hate to use the word thing, but like it's a very, it's a very exciting thing to see in baseball. Um, it's pretty like unpopular, but no, it's it's actually nice to see like a bullpen guy kind of ambush the top of the order which is what I think the Rays are going for uh, in, in those few games. Yeah, I, I, and I agree with what you said. It, some people think it's unpopular. Zach Cozart expressed some anti-four-man uh, rotation ideologies earlier in the week. But, I mean, for a team like the Rays, who don't have a lot of money and need to win in the margins, I completely respect it. I mean, people are always naturally resistant to change. Just think about how people felt about defensive shifts five years ago, and now teams are doing it in bulk. So, I think... Eventually, if it catches on and it becomes more of the norm, people will obviously start coming towards it, and it'll be okay. Dave, do you have any opinions on a four-man or even a six-man rotation that the Angels are utilizing right now? Yeah, well, I think in the race uh, circumstances, the four-man rotation is more just born out of they only have four people that are capable of being starters, because let's be real right now, their roster is shit. So... um, (laughs) I think that had a lot to do with the reason that they went to the four-man rotation and basically using a bullpen game every fifth fifth go, but it's worked out great for them. I'm not sure if they meant to do this or if this was a plan, but regardless, they really might have stumbled onto something. And as for the Angels' six-man rotation, I think that's just another one where if your bullpen is really not that great and you got a bunch of starters, I'd say go with it. Honestly... 
I could have seen the Red Sox doing it a little bit a little bit ago, but honestly, right now with um, the rotation being as strong as it is, I don't think they, they'd go that route, but we certainly have the guys capable of doing a six-man if we wanted to. But I think Wright and Johnson, who are the two most, excuse me, Ryan Velasquez, who are the two most likely or best utilized in the bullpen. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And in terms of the Angels rotation, also I feel like the six-man rotation is in practice to cater to Shohei Otani to get him on a more uh, normative schedule that he had over uh, overseas. So I think that has something to do with it. But yeah, I, I definitely like the innovative strategy. Um, would love to see if in the future it finds out to be a niche in the market, like this strategy works. So I would be interested to see the Red Sox use it. They, I was watching MLB Central, I think, think or is MLB now one of the two it was MLB now because Brian Kenny was there um and they said they were like highlighting relievers who would be great candidates to start in the first inning because you know Sergio Romo as Jordan said broke the mold in that regard and the number one player that they picked I think it was based on Woba against I don't know why that would have anything to do with uh, the first inning I mean I guess it I guess it's a good thing to have a low Woba but they said Matt Barnes would be the most likely candidate in Major League Baseball in a bullpen to be uh, to pitch a first inning what would you think about Jordan uh, Matt Barnes pitching the first inning for the Red Sox I mean uh, I mean, I, like, I, I, again, um, I'm I'm kind of more of like a Hector Velasquez guy with uh, with like with Dave. Um, I like I, I remember like this is where I keep mentioning that like I saw him pitch in person like a, a few months ago. Yeah, uh, he did a great job. But, like when I saw him, um, and then like the games that I've watched with him, like with him in the game um, throughout the season, like I've I've had, I've had more confidence watching him. Than in uh in Chris and sorry not Chris Barnes Matt Barnes, um so like I would give the nod to to uh, like to Velasquez uh, over Barnes if, if I were a uh, better Cora in that situation. Yeah, Barnes definitely has struggled with command, so it would be interesting to see him uh, go in the first inning. I mean, the thing about it is though that Matt Barnes is not necessarily a guy that you need in the seventh, eighth, ninth. So like if you were to do it with a reliever on that staff, you could do it with him Hector Velasquez is more of a long man option so if you want to like do what the Rays usually do they usually start Ryan Yar I, uh, Ryan Y let's call him I, I cannot say his last name there's a lot of there's a lot of yeah, is that how you say it yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. okay yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he's he, he's he's a beast him he's he's killing it we, he's really taken exceptionally to this role um but yeah, I think that would be more of a Hector Velasquez situation. Um, this was we weren't even supposed to talk about this, but Jordan brought it up, and it's a captivating discussion. So here we are, um, Dave. Do you think that what do, what what would your thoughts be about Matt Barnes starting the first inning for the Boston Red Sox? So I'm still in the camp that the Rays are only doing this because they have no better options. Red yeah. Sox do have better options. They have quite a few of them outside of the Astros. There aren't many rotations that are clearly better than the one the Sox have. But that being said, if you're going to do it, I would do it with Barnes. And he gets a lot of hate around uh, the the Red Sox fan base, and a good amount of it's deserved. But if you look at his splits, there's really a lot to like about Matt Barnes when he's used in the right situation. So if you look at Barnes, Barnes by the numbers, I don't have them in front of me because I didn't know this conversation was going to come up today, but if you look at his splits in low to medium uh, level situations for pressure-wise, 
He's actually a pretty solid arm. He's not Craig Kimbrell by any means, but he's certainly capable of getting the job done. The reason you all hate Matt Barnes, everyone listening, is because of what happens when you put him into a high-pressure situation, and especially a high-pressure situation on the road. The dude's just not built for those situations, and things almost always go bad. I've tweeted that out a few times when he has been in high-pressure situations. The numbers, well, they're appalling, to be honest, so... Um, look those up when you got the spare chance. So, if you put him in the first inning, you don't have to worry about the high-pressure situation things. And, you know, he's not much use late in the games anyway in a close situation, so it's not like you're losing that valuable an arm. So, if you're going to do it, I say do it with Barnes. Yeah, and I agree. And I, I like how you alluded to, like, the low-leverage versus high-leverage situations and how he's performed there. Um, but the reason the Rays use Romo also against the Angels in two consecutive days is because they're very right-handed um, in top of the lineup, and Romo is right-handed, and he's a right-handed specialist almost. So they used him. They were playing the platoon. Um, if that situation were to arise, I don't know if you guys know this, but the the in of every single inning in a Major League Baseball game, the first inning is by far where the most runs happen, like over, like, Major League Baseball history. It's not the 7th, 8th, ninth. First inning is where the most damage is done. So if you want to start off well, if you want to limit the damage, you might as well. And you want to, like, play the splits. I mean, maybe it's a revolutionary strategy. Maybe the Red Sox have five really good options in the rotation that's not even necessary. But I think we're this will probably be more of the norm, especially for teams like the Rays who have to win in the margins and don't have great options. Um, but, yeah. So now we're going to move on from that conversation. That was a riveting discussion. I'm, I'm glad I had that with you guys. But um, Hanley Ramirez is batting in the three-hole tonight. Um, I want to read you guys a tweet from Red Sox Stats. Since the start of the 2017 season, so that would include this year and last, uh, he's the only first baseman with a negative war and below league average hitting. Oh, okay, okay, I read that wrong. Are Hanley Ramirez and Chris Davis. So they are the, since the start of 2017, they are the only first baseman with negative war and below league average hitting. The only first baseman with higher extra base hit rates than Mitch Moreland are Jose Abreu, Freddie Freeman, and Cody Bellinger. And Red Sox stat says, this feels like bizarre usage. What do you guys think about Hanley Ramirez continuously being plugged in this lineup? I'm going to read some stats real quick, though. He now has a 99 WRC plus on the season, so he's below average in hitting. Uh, 0.1 F4, a 414 slug, and a 266 average. Um, over the monster, Matt Collins uh, talked about this ad nauseum in an article today. Um, he's eight, Hanley Ramirez is 82nd in barrel per plate appearance, which is the ideal mixture of launch angle, exit velocity. You want to have a good barrel per plate appearance is bets. Martinez, number one, number two, um, and that's middle of the pack. He's 25th in average exit velocity, so you can be like, oh, maybe there's hope there, but 50% of the balls he's hit are on the ground, and exit velocity does not, average exit velocity does not take into account if it's in on the ground or if it's in the air. Obviously, if you're hitting a ball 100 miles per hour in the air, it's a lot more valuable than it's on the ground, because it's more likely to go for an out on the ground, um, and it's not going to be an extra base hit. So, what do you guys think about Hanley Ramirez's struggles, and are you continuing to put him in the lineup if you are Alex Cora? Dave, I'm going to start with you. All right, so this is going to be a multi-part answer. The most obvious part is the, um, should Hanley be playing over Moreland, to which I give a very, very strong no. Moreland deserves to be the starter. He's been phenomenal. He's an upgrade on defense. He's an upgrade in the offense. And playing him won't cost you $22 million next year, so... When only one of Hanley and Moreland are in the lineup, it should be Moreland. Obviously, with uh, JBJ kind of struggling, they're 
they're they're still putting him in the lineup, but they're taking him out of it more than they used to. So when that happens, do Hanley, Moreland, and JD? I get that, but when it's just one of Moreland or Hanley, it really should be Moreland. They're, every stat in the world backs up Moreland as the better player this year. So I don't really know why Core is sticking with Hanley. But that being said, if you're going to stick with Hanley, put him in the three hole. A lot of people, there's a strong misconception about uh, the third spot in the order. A lot of people think that it's the uh, most, one of the most important, if not the most important spots in the lineup. So a lot of people look at that and say, well, Hanley's struggling so hard. Why is he hitting third? But um, someone with way too much time on their hands, um, I don't know who it was. I think it was, it was a book called Inside the Book. Um, they did a very long study basically breaking down um, wh- like which spots are most important based on runners on base, what you need. And honestly, of the top five spots, the third spot is the least important. The most important thing you need to do is um, get a get a home run hitting guy with good average like J.D. Martinez and clean up. And the next most important spots are one and two. One should be the guy that has a little less power. Two should be the one with the middle power. So... Um, and then after that, you go to the five guy, and then three, because three of all of them has the least amount of guys on ba- averages the least amount of guys on base per at bat. So, yeah, go Hanley. Yeah, I, I've looked at that, um, the, what you alluded to about the lineup construction. Um, I think four and two are regarded as, according from a sabermetrics slant, the most valuable positions, is, even in terms of runs scored. Um, so, yeah, number three is a little overblown, but uh, Mitch Mullen's been 313 on the year, 596 slug, 1.2 F4, 163 WRC+, plus, which you said Mitch Moreland is objectively better in every statistical category, and it's not particularly close. Um, so, if yeah, if the question is, should Moreland be in there over Hanley Ramirez, it's a resounding yes, but, yeah, I agree with you that Hanley Ramirez in the three-hole is not the biggest atrocity in the world. Uh, Jordan, what are your thoughts on this? You know, uh, I mean, David, once again, just took the words right out of my mouth. Um, I mean, he, like, in the uh, March, and, like, it splits, like, from month to month. I think you mentioned this already, but, like, he, had, he got off of a, hard, a hot start, like, 350. And then he's, like, he's just gone flat cold at, like, a 181 average. Um, so, I mean, just, like, with him, his struggles on top of, um, I mean, on top of already what Dave said, I mean, like, Mitch is still, Mitch is still, like, a hotter hitter, and his defense is a lot better than, uh, than Hamlin's, so, like, I'm with Dave, let's go, let's go Mitch Moreland. Mitchie M, but yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. if you're putting Hanley in there, I don't think the three spots that big of a deal. Um, Mitch Moreland's absolutely deserved to stay in the in the lineup every day and if that means displacing jbj if that means displacing hanley it should be done because moreland is straight raking the underlying statistics back it up um moreland should be in there even his defense is just so fun to watch former gold glover um moving on to the next subject we're going to be talking about the unheralded jd martinez not not really unheralded. The people are starting to recognize him, but I don't think he's like perceived as as big, especially in the off season coming into this year. He's not perceived as this big of a slugger as a guy like John Carl Stanton, but but he is, and and the Red Sox are finding that out in a big way. Major League Baseball has been finding that out for the past couple of years. Uh, he's 18th in F4 
which considering he is an absolute zero on defense is incredible. Um, he's third in WRC plus behind only Mookie Betts and Mike Trout. He's second in home runs, second in barrel per plate appearances, second in average exit velocity. Dude's a beast, deserves all the credit in the world. Uh, Jordan, do you want to say anything on J.D. Martinez's behalf? Because it's just going to be a J.D. Martinez love fest. That, that's, what, that's how I picture this is going to go. I mean, I mean, you, you you touched on it before. Going into the season, um, we were very skeptical on what, like what we would get with uh, with J D Martinez. And uh, like as I was doing research uh, today, um, he wasn't very happy with how you know the contract negotiations were were, uh, were going down. So it's actually like a very nice, like it's it's a relief to watch uh, J D Martinez have this big of a season. And then, like you know, just statistically, as you were uh, as you were um, as you were touching on stats, um, I mean, half of half of contact of balls in play, it's like he's getting a hard contact at a fifty three point one percent clip. Um, he's also, and then he's turning those like that hard contact into a thirty five percent fly ball rate, fly ball to home run rate, and I think he's getting the same amount of. Um, the, um, almost the same amount of, of his fly ball rates. So, I mean, he's, hit, he's hitting the ball in the air, and then he's converting those fly balls into home runs almost like a third of the time. So, I mean, it's, it's just phenomenal to watch this guy hit, and he's, like, he's the second-best hitter, hitter on the team, only because Beth is, like, has become a demigod in Boston. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, Dave, what about you? So... Um, we work out a bunch of great J.D. Martinez stats and just showing he's wonderful, but there's one you guys are both forgetting. Is it do, you know what, uh, do you know what I'm about to list off here? Babbitt. Nope. Bab- um, no, no. I'm just going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so in just two months, J.D. Martinez has already eclipsed a pair of Red Sox legends. So in his two months here, J.D. Martinez has hit 15 home runs Meanwhile, Surefire Hall of Famers Carl Crawford and Pablo Sandoval both only had 14 each. So think about how great those players were, and now just imagine J.D. Martinez has done more in two months than they did over their entire Red Sox tenure. That's incredible. That's incredible. And what was the kind com- What's the combined? Thank you for that stat. That that made my day. That that was a very lighthearted <laughs> stat, and it was wonderful. But like. Pablo Sandoval, Carl Crawford, does anyone have a rough estimate of how much their combined contracts were in comparison to J.D. Martinez? So. Um, I know Sandoval, I think, was, um, he was I think he was five-year, 95 mil, and Crawford was something outrageous. He was like over 100, Seven-year, right? yeah, seven-year, want to say 150 or something like that. Yeah. So J.D. Martinez is doing it at a fraction of the cost, and, you know, Pablo Sandoval and Carl yeah, Crawford and rejects. Like, I could keep going on about stats, but you and Jordan, Pat, really got that covered. So I'm just going to, I want to talk for a second about how I'm really, really impressed with how uh, Dombrowski approached acquiring Martinez and doing it at the right price. So in years years past, um, the Red Sox season would end in anything other than a World Series. The Sox would just go out and throw money at the most easily available solution to whatever the team perceived the biggest problem to be. After... uh, well, actually, even when they won the World Series, um, in 13, they missed out on, uh, they just said, hey, look, Cuban international free agent Ruznay Castillo have all the money. That didn't work out. 14, the team couldn't hit a home run to save its life, so they just, they just 
uh, emptied a dump truck on Hanley's slap and uh, Sandoval's lap and said that'll fix the offense, wiped their hands, and basically just overpaid these incredibly bloated contracts. And they did the same thing with Price, who I'm a fan of, but I will be the first to say he is not worth $31 million a year. With, Mar- with Martinez, the team did acknowledge they had a flaw, they needed more power, but they didn't just immediately throw all the money and try to solve it. They they were wise, they didn't outbid themselves, and they got a really great contract, which helps Martinez, because he's getting paid and gets an opt-out in two years, and helps the Red Sox solve their biggest need. So, kudos to Dombrowski. Good work. Yes, definitely good work on Dombrowski's end. He, he, he exuded exceptional patience like we were all waiting everyone was getting annoyed and he did not budge Red Sox fans were clamoring him to make a move everyone there was some really negative press and he stayed the course and he got Martinez for an exceptional deal Um, but yeah I also think it speaks volumes to the evolution not only of like the Red Sox front office of how they approach these large multi-year contracts but Dave Dombrowski himself because if you remember this is a guy who used to be the GM of the Detroit Tigers and he completely he left them desolate with his long-term frivolous extensions that he gave to Prince Fielder that he gave that huge extension he gave to Miguel Cabrera and even David Price so I think it really spoke volumes to Dave Dombrowski and his evolution as a as a baseball president of baseball ops and he had great patience and you know all, all the credit in the world to him it, it seems like this was a fabulous offseason between that and the Mitch Moreland re-signing I mean Eduardo Nunez too but you know you win some and you lose some um well maybe you kind of who, who else would you have exactly now yeah I get that and he's what making four million so it's not even that big of a deal yeah, I mean, that was just a, we need a body, Nunez, you're a body. We yeah. didn't throw big money, and no one was throwing parades when we signed Nunez, so. In theory, it was good. In practice, it hasn't worked out that way, but it's like, it's it's not going to cost you much, so it's it's really not a big deal. So, like, even, like, you take that risk, it's a good risk to take. It just, the process has not matched with the result. So, we're going to move on from our J.D. Martinez love fest here. I think it was a great love fest, guys. That was awesome. And now we're going to be talking about the return of Dustin Bedroya. There are reports that said he could potentially join the team Friday. Uh, Pete Abraham actually had another tweet. I I cite Pete Abraham all the time. Um, He said that Alex Cora said Dustin Bedroya is scheduled for seven innings tonight in AAA and has the option to play at the 11.05 a.m. game tomorrow. However, it works out they want him to play consecutive nights in the field before they discuss him coming off the, D- the DL. Um, so, I'm going to start with you, Jordan. What Are you excited to have Dustin Bedroya back? Do you think he's going to make, what kind of impact do you think he's going to make for the team? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, despite what he's going to do on the field, uh, I, I, I mean, the, the, uh, sorry, Kajori is like the leader of that clubhouse, and having him back will just kind of, I hope, will revitalize the Red Sox because, um, you know, they'll have their man uh, PD back. Uh, and then, you know, statistically, um, he's just a better defender than Eduardo Nunez. I mean, I think we've all seen in the, uh, the mishaps that Nunez has had, um, and it's kind of, and like, thankfully that we've had like Brock Holt, like, kind of coming in relief. And um, put up like a great start while while um, Pedroia's been absent. But to have but to have uh, Pedroia come back, um, both on the field and in the clubhouse, it's going to be a great going to be a great day, Friday. Yes, it will be Hopefully. a great day if the, if it, if yeah. he comes back. Yeah, definitely. Um, Dave, you actually wrote an article about this. I think it was titled "What Dustin Pedroia's Retur- Return Means for the Red Sox." Um, what do you think about him coming back, and what kind of impacts he's going to make? 
So I'm very excited for Dustin Pedroia's return. Um, a lot of people out there on Twitter are saying that, like, oh, PD's shot. I can't wait for him to go 240 and, like, break his knee in July. And I, I don't know where that's coming from. Like, I think everyone knows that the 2008 Dustin Pedroia is not coming through that door to save the day. But Pedroia has yet to be bad and healthy at the same time. And if we know anything about Alex Corr's managerial style, it's that he's not going to play a guy if they're not healthy. Definitely. He's a very cautious manager, which I think is a great thing for Pedroia. So when we get him back, you're getting an obvious upgrade on defense. His defense hasn't dropped off at all ever since he entered the league. He's still that gold-glove caliber guy. He hasn't won one in a while. That's mostly due to him having missed a lot of time. But when he's healthy and he's rolling, and he should be you know, healthy and rolling the majority of the season, hopefully all of it, he's a huge defensive upgrade. And Nunez has just been such a black hole, and Holt's not much better defensively. So that alone is going to help the Red Sox probably add a win or two on the board every you know, every now and again. But also, offensively, Pedroia is not the guy from 2008 anymore. He's not going to hit 330 and knock 20 homers. I'd be surprised if he got, got double-digit homers. But he's still a really good contact hitter. He's able to hit it to all three parts of the field, albeit not for power anymore. He's still great for doubles off the monster. And honestly, he's a better hitter than Nunez is. And for those worried about, well, well, how will he come back from injury? We can't know for sure, but all the evidence we have, all the data we've seen from the times he's done it before shows there's really not a drop-off. Pedro is one of those guys that he gives 110% on every time, every time he's out there, every single swing, every single pitch. And in a way, that's bad for him because it causes him to break down. But when he's healthy and when he's giving 110%, he doesn't let the aches and pains slow him down in the slightest. So I cannot wait to have Pedroia back. No, me, me neither. I agree with everything you just said. Yeah, there are a lot of people on Twitter who've been lambasting him, and they're like, oh, the retirement tour is coming up. But, my gosh, people forget that even last year, he was a 1.9 F4 player in 463 plate appearances. And if he played a full season, and I'm not sure, maybe he never play a full season again. But that's still, like, very valuable. I mean, he, yeah, he's not going to be the 2008 guy. He might not even be the 2016 guy. But in two years ago, this guy had 122 WRC plus and 698 plate appearances and was worth five wins. Like, his slug, his powers dipped considerably. Like, last year, his slugging percentage was under 400 for the first time in, since I can ever remember Dustin Pedroia being a Major League Baseball player. But he's an OBP machine. He's a great defensive upgrade. And I'm, I'm so happy to have Pedroia coming back. And I don't think that people can argue that Nunez or Holt are going to be a better alternative. Like, this is a major upgrade for the Red Sox. And I'm so stoked for Pedroia. I got my Pedroia yeah. jersey ready. I had that. I, I tweeted that. It's ready. It's going to be out. And I can't wait. So, come back, Dustin Pedroia. We miss you. We're expecting great things because you're a great player. So, with that out of the way, we are going to move on to our next subject. And NBC Sports, Evan Drellich. Did I say that right? Does anyone... Know how to pronounce his last name? I don't know how you pronounce it. There's a lot nah, of me neither. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, I didn't botch that. I probably did. Um, yeah, he's he's a beat reporter for the Red Sox, courtesy of NBC Sports. Great guy, worth a follow. Uh, had a book come out. I'm not trying to promote it, but heard it was interesting. Um, so the Red Sox are reportedly asking a lot for Blake Swihart, which is surprising. Uh, one talent evaluator said, it's hard to find a trade partner and in, in reference to the Red Sox when you're asking for some of the team's best prospects. Um, 
Yeah, that's that's kind of weird to me that they would be asking for top prospects for Blake Blake Swihart's services. Uh, Jordan, what do you think about that? You know what? I read I read about this this uh, this afternoon, um, and I was I was just kind of confused on why the Red Sox would think that they'd be getting a top prospect prospect back uh, in in exchange for Swihart because he ha- honestly he hasn't had any playing any regular playing time this season. He's been juggling time with uh, Christian Vasquez and Sam Leon, and I don't think he's going to be seeing any, uh, <clears throat> any change in, in, in appearances uh, unless Vasquez or Leon gets injured. Um, I think he's only, he's only hitting about you know, 133, um, so his trade value is down like, like super well. Um, and it's just kind of like another example of how uh, the Red Sox are treating Swihart, um, and I just I don't see it in the cards that um, that they're going to get a top prospect back. Uh, I mean, I also read that like they could designate him for for assignment, and then like obviously they'll have to like trade or release him. Definitely, but you know at the same time, it's like asking for a top prospect in return for Swihart is kind of I mean it's laughable and it's a little uh, disappointing. It is, it is, um, and they haven't <laughs> handled this. Very well. Dave, what do you think? Oh, I have no idea. I'm with you guys. I have no idea what the Red Sox are doing with him. But when I take a really, really strong guess on what I think they're doing, um, I think it's just they know they don't have to trade him yet. Um, They've got a few other options for at catcher, obviously, and Leon and Vasquez, as underwhelming as they are. But the trade deadline isn't until July, and you know that I mean, you know that's why it has the potential to be something, and I think the Sox do know that they uh, really didn't handle this situation as well as they could have. So I think um, they're just holding on to him as long as they can because why would you trade him if you don't have to? Maybe that changes when Pedroia and Thornburg come back and you're kind of pressed for roster spots, but right now, if you don't need to get rid of him, why would you? And maybe it's just the Swihart optimist in me here, but I do there are some very very early signs that they could be trying to incorporate Swihart into the game more? And I'm, I do realize that what I'm about to say sounds like someone who's grasping at straws, and I know that I am grasping at straws. But um, Pomeranz threw a simu- simulated game the other day. I'm pretty sure Swihart caught that. I've heard, I've seen other tweets out there. I forget by whom, but uh, they're basically saying Swihart has been getting a few extra reps at. Ca- at a catcher before the game, or at least they're more, if they're not extra reps, they're more noticeable now. They're doing it in front of other people. I'm not sure what Swihart's normal workout routine is, but I mean, there is hope in my heart that uh, somehow, some way, they are getting ready to get Blake Swihart back behind the plate. Because he did it, again, he did it um, catching right that one game. He looked good. Granted, it was one inning, but it was a knuckleballers. And it was a game that the Red Sox were not out of, so they could have won it, and they trusted Swihart to not screw it up. So, I don't know. I'm holding out hope that Red Sox are really just holding their hand as long as they can until they feel comfortable with Swihart's defense, and then they'd be willing to incorporate him more into the catcher rotation, maybe make Vasquez the number three guy, because right now he should be the number three guy. 
Yeah, and we've talked about this a lot. We, we've discussed a lot that the catching situation for the Red Sox is atrocious. It's abysmal, and there's there's no getting around that. And Blake Swihart would probably be an offensive upgrade. Actually, he'll definitely be an offensive upgrade. It's where the trade-off with defense meets, and the Red Sox do not seem comfortable putting him back there because they have questions. I'd be an offensive upgrade. <laughs> you would be. You would be a considerable offensive upgrade. Um, so, yeah. Um, but... I'm also kind of midway, like through evaluating and looking at this. I was kind of thinking, like maybe catching is out of the cards for Blake Swihart. Maybe they're still holding on to the contingency that if Hanram struggles continue and if they persist, and he doesn't, you know, and they don't want to exercise that 22 million vesting option that goes in effect if he gets 497 plate appearances and JBJ continues to struggle and he doesn't get out of this funk and they have to send him down, that maybe Swire could see some time at DH and then you put Swire to DH, you put Moreland at first and Hanram's more of a bench bat. I mean, I don't think Swihart's an offensive upgrade over Hanram, don't get me wrong, but if you're playing like an economic game, if you're thinking about this logically going forward, maybe they're just curious to see like if this does happen can we have him as a contingency plan if Hanram does not turn it around and if if Jackie Bradley Jr. doesn't turn it around so I thought about that briefly what would you think about that Dave um you see I feel like if they were going to do something like that they would have already done it so I heard played basically no time at all this year and they've had the opportunities to get him in as we've mentioned before Jackie's been Jackie's been struggling a lot so J.D. Martinez has been seeing the outfield, and he's been seeing D.H., and um, Marlon's been seeing first. They've been doing that a lot. I feel like if you really wanted to, you could incorporate Swihart into one of those games, yeah. and they never really do. They basically just use him as a bench player occasionally. If a game goes later, they need a pinch runner or a, like the very rare pinch hitter. They use him for that, but if they wanted to get Swihart involved, they would. If they believe him as a left fielder defensively, there's more than enough. Yeah. I agree with that 100%. And, I, and the thing is, I think that with... with Okay, so Swihart, Swihart is what he is. He's going to be a bat first guy, and I don't think he's that good of an offensive threat, but like at the catcher position, he definitely is an upgrade. Um, but I'm not sure that Swihart is ever going to get those at-bats a catcher. And I think that maybe if you put him at at DH, and the thing about Hanley Ramirez is they were hoping that Hanley Ramirez would turn it around. They were hoping that Hanley Ramirez was going to be the guy that they saw in 2016, but he hasn't been. And the underlying stats suggest that he won't be. So my curiosity lies that if, like, Hanley Ramirez, they wanted the core is so hell-bent on getting Hanley Ramirez in the lineup at number three. So if... If Henry Ramirez really doesn't turn it around, maybe they go so hard. But with that, we're gonna we're gonna move on to the next topic, um, and it's actually the last topic before we depart this midweek episode. And it's gonna be about the Boston Red Sox bullpen. So I wrote an article called titled "The Underrated Boston Red Sox Bullpen." It was on the site yesterday, uh, actually Monday, Monday I think. Is is it is it Wednesday? Yeah, it's Wednesday. So before today is Wednesday. Today yeah. is Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> so before yesterday's game, I think I said it was Wednesday like twice already. Um, before yesterday's game, 
Um, the squad boasted, the, in reference to the bullpen, it boasted the ninth best ERA, 351, and had a better, even better underlying statistics with a 338 peripheral, uh, 3, 338 FIP. And that placed sixth in the league. FIP has more predictive value than ERA, too, so, you know, that's that's always encouraging. And altogether, the boys in Boston bullpen ranked fourth in Major League Baseball in Fangraph's war at 2.3. So what do you guys think about these numbers? I'm going to start with you, Jordan. Um, I mean, based on what we've seen at like the beginning of the season, where we were like, where uh, I believe, I mean, I I thought it was, like if we put anybody in the bullpen, it was just kind of like, you know, we kind of held a rough and see what we got like at the end of the game. But um, I mean, it's a great turnaround to see um, our bullpen playing well again. Uh, I think like the last, I want to say, um, at least in the last series, like we've had. Three, three solid like combined scores, uh, um, scores games out of the bullpen, which you know, like I said, based on like how the how the season began, is a great upgrade from um, from where we were to start the season. Yeah. Well, what about you, Dave? Yeah. So I don't. I, I did read your article, and I was surprised by how good all the numbers were. And then I stopped and think about it, and like I don't think we're going to be a top five bullpen in baseball the rest of the way. I think that's a little playing over our heads. Definitely, but we do have a lot you can feel comfortable about. Um, obviously, Kimbrel's great, probably the best closer in baseball right now. Um, I really like how Joe Kelly's been doing playing this well for this long. I've always thought that I've always thought of him as a very streaky player where he can get on for a month but then get off for two. But we've had pretty much two straight solid months of Joe Kelly. So I'm cautiously optimistic that maybe he won't be this good, but he should be a reliable lead in the arm moving forward. I'm really hopeful for that. Um, Thornburg, he's coming back soon. He's had a few mixed appearances. He's taken good with the bad, but that's expected from taking a year and a half off of baseball. Um, when he's going good, and I just know this from, uh, I follow the Paw Sox Twitter, and they post, they post uh, little videos of him like throwing his curveball, that thing can still move. That's he did not nasty. lose that. Is nasty. So I think um, once he really gets his uh, form back, he'll be a big boost to the bullpen. And we have a so there's your seven, eight, nine guys right there when everything's up and running. And I think the rest of the unit is solid enough to not necessarily screw everything up. You've got great long long options in uh, Velasquez and Wright. You've got pretty solid early inning options in Barnes. Um, I'm not going to say Heath, Heath Henry because I don't like Heath Henry. <laughs> so, and uh, I, I feel like you got to try to find a way to make Bobby Pointer stick up there too. Yeah, yeah, but but it you, with the statistics about Heath Henry, you weren't you weren't turned to the dark side and thinking that Heath Henry was a quality reliever. I think Heath Hembry is not the worst anymore. That does not mean I think he's good. <laughs> I'll take what I can get. Um, but yeah, so the other thing about the bullpen, I know you, you just discussed, you, you laid it out perfectly, you took all the words right out of my mouth, but they have a lot of depth pieces. Like Velasquez and Thornburg will return. Stephen Wright adds a different dimension. They got a long guys, Johnson, Velasquez, and uh, Stephen Wright. And then, like, even Marcus Walden, like, he's been up here. He's been amazing. Like, I mean, not amazing. That's that's really overblowing it, but he's been solid. He's um, been serviceable. He's been serviceable, but, like, looking at his stats, they're pretty dang good. I think he's been worth .2 F war in, like, 14 innings, so that's pretty good. He's using his cutter, like, 40% of the time, so he's got nice horizontal movement on that pitch. Um, and then, 
I wouldn't sleep on Austin Maddox, who was in the Red Sox bullpen in, in the postseason last year. I think they actually favored him over Matt Barnes, was it, last year? I, I forgot Maddox was coming back. Yeah, he's huge. Got him for the rant out. Yeah, he's coming back. No one's talking about him, but I think he's definitely, a, a, at worst, he's a depth piece. And then you got Brandon Workman, who I know you're very partial to as well. So, yeah. Yep. This group is a lot Lord. better than people think. And people get distracted by, like, the some people were tweeting at me, like, they had bad losses against bad teams. Every team has bad losses against bad teams. No reliever is going to be on every single time. And I know the, there are some guys in the Red Sox bullpen who are admittedly very inconsistent and have command problems. Matt Barnes, Heath Embry, even Joe Kelly. But they still, by and large, get the job done. So I am... A believer in this bullpen. I think the Carson Smith injury hurts. I think Thornburg is going to have to prove that he can be a seventh inning guy, but I don't even know if they necessarily need one. Um, yeah. So with that, that's going to do it for our weekday episode. Uh, did, Dave, do you have anything more to add? Um, no, I think we covered it all. It was a good uh, first first Wednesday episode. First yeah. of many. Yeah, first of many Wednesdayers. What about you, Jordan? No, I'm good. Uh, like, I, you know, this Monday episode went well. I like it. I had a good time. Yes, it was a it was blast talking to you guys, and and we'll be back on Sunday for episode number eight. So what we're planning to do is to do a, a weekday episode Wednesday, Thursday, and then we'll do one every Sunday as we always do. Um, this has been an absolute blast, guys. You can listen to this on iTunes. Subscribe uh, to the Red Sox Unfiltered podcast. We are also through the Grueling Truth Network. We are featured on iHeartRadio, on Spreaker, and on YouTube. So there's a lot of places you can listen to us, and we hope you do. Um, as always, go Red Sox. I'm excited to watch this game, and let's get that dub. Thanks, guys.